Section One of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume Two by James Boswell, Section One. In 1764 and 1765 it should seem that Dr. Johnson was so busily employed with his edition of Shakespeare as to have had little leisure for any other literary exertion, or indeed even for private correspondence. He did not favour me with a single letter for more than two years, for which it will appear that he afterwards apologised. He was, however, at all times ready to give assistance to his friends and others in revising their works and in writing for them, or greatly improving their dedications. In that courtly species of composition no man excelled Dr. Johnson. Though the loftiness of his mind prevented him from ever dedicating in his own person, he wrote a very great number of dedications for others. Some of these, the persons who were favoured with them, are unwilling should be mentioned, from a too anxious apprehension, as I think, that they might be suspected of having received larger assistance. And some, after all the diligence I have bestowed, have escaped my inquiries. He told me, a great many years ago, he believed he had dedicated to all the royal family round, and it was indifferent to him what was the subject of the work dedicated, provided it were innocent. He once dedicated some music for the German flute to Edward, Duke of York. In writing dedications for others he considered himself as by no means speaking his own sentiments. Notwithstanding his long silence, I never omitted to write to him when I had anything worthy of communicating. I generally kept copies of my letters to him, that I might have a full view of our correspondence and never be at a loss to understand any reference in his letters. He kept the greater part of mine very carefully, and a short time before his death was attentive enough to seal them up in bundles and order them to be delivered to me, which was accordingly done. Amongst them I found one of which I had not made a copy, and which I own I read with pleasure at the distance of almost twenty years. It is dated November 1765 at the palace of Pascal Paoli in Corte, the capital of Corsica, and is full of generous enthusiasm. After giving a sketch of what I had seen and heard in that island, it proceeded thus. I dare to call this a spirited tour. I dare to challenge your approbation. This letter produced the following answer, which I found on my arrival at Paris. Ah, Monsieur Boswell! Chez Monsieur Waters, banquier à Paris. Dear Sir, Apologies are seldom of any use. We will delay till your arrival the reasons, good or bad, which have made me such a sparing and ungrateful correspondent. Be assured for the present that nothing has lessened either the esteem or love with which I dismissed you at Harwich. Both have been increased by all that I have been told of you by yourself or others, and when you return, you will return to an unaltered and, I hope, unalterable friend. All that you have to fear from me is the vexation of disappointing me. 
No man loves to frustrate expectations which have been formed in his favour, and the pleasure which I promise myself from your journals and remarks is so great, that perhaps no degree of attention or discernment will be sufficient to avoid it. Come home, however, and take your chance. I long to see you and to hear you, and hope that we shall not be so long separated again. Come home, and expect such a welcome as is due to him whom a wise and noble curiosity has led, where perhaps no native of this country ever was before. I have no news to tell you that can deserve your notice, nor would I willingly lessen the pleasure that any novelty may give you at your return. I am afraid we shall find it difficult to keep among us a mind which has been so long feasted with variety. But let us try what esteem and kindness can effect. As your father's liberality has indulged you with so long a ramble, I doubt not but you will think his sickness, or even his desire to see you, a sufficient reason for hastening your return. The longer we live, and the more we think, the higher value we learn to put on the friendship and tenderness of parents and of friends. Parents we can have but once, and he promises himself too much who enters life with the expectation of finding many friends. Upon some motive I hope that you will be here soon, and am willing to think that it will be an inducement to your return, that it is sincerely desired by, dear sir, your affectionate and humble servant, Sam Johnson. Johnson's Court, Fleet Street, January 14th, 1766. I returned to London in February, and found Dr. Johnson in a good house in Johnson's Court, Fleet Street, in which he had accommodated Miss Williams with an apartment on the ground floor, while Mr. Levitt occupied his post in the garret. His faithful Francis was still attending upon him. He received me with much kindness. The fragments of our first conversation, which I have preserved, are these. I told him that Voltaire, in a conversation with me, had distinguished Pope and Dryden thus. Pope drives a handsome chariot, with a couple of neat trim nags, Dryden a coach and six stately horses. Johnson. Why, sir, the truth is, they both drive coaches and six, but Dryden's horses are either galloping or stumbling. Pope's go at a steady even trot. He said of Goldsmith's Traveller, which had been published in my absence, there has not been so fine a poem since Pope's time. And here it is proper to settle, with authentic precision, what has long floated in public report, as to Johnson's being himself the author of a considerable part of that poem. Much, no doubt, both of the sentiments and expression were derived from conversation with him and it was certainly submitted to his friendly revision, but in the year 1783 he, at my request, marked with a pencil the lines which he had furnished, which are only line 420, to stop too fearful and too faint to go, and the concluding ten lines, except the last couplet but one. How small of all that human hearts endure, That part which kings or laws can cause or cure. Still to ourselves in every place consigned, Our own felicity we make or find. With secret course, which no loud storms annoy, Glides the smooth current of domestic joy. The lifted axe, the agonizing wheel, Luke's iron crown and Damien's bed of steel. To men, 
remote from power, but rarely known, leave reason, faith, and conscience, all our own. He added, These are all of which I can be sure. They bear a small proportion to the whole, which consists of 438 verses. Goldsmith, in the couplet which he inserted, mentions Luke as a person well known, and superficial readers have passed it over quite smoothly, while those of more attention have been as much perplexed by Luke as by Lydiat in The Vanity of Human Wishes. The truth is that Goldsmith himself was in a mistake. In the Respublica Hungarian, there is an account of a desperate rebellion in the year 1514, headed by two brothers of the name of Zek, George and Luke. When it was quelled, George, not Luke, was punished by his head being encircled with a red-hot iron crown, corona candescente ferrea coronato. The same severity of torture was exercised on the Earl of Athol, one of the murderers of King James I of Scotland. Dr. Johnson, at the same time, favoured me by marking the lines which he furnished to Goldsmith's deserted village, which are only the last four. That trade's proud empire hastes to swift decay, as ocean sweeps the laboured mole away, while self-dependent power can time defy, as rocks resist the billows and the sky. Talking of education— People have nowadays, said he, got a strange opinion that everything should be taught by lectures. Now I cannot see that lectures can do so much good as reading the books from which the lectures are taken. I know nothing that can be best taught by lectures except where experiments are to be shown. You may teach chemistry by lectures. You might teach making of shoes by lectures. At night I supped with him at the Mitre Tavern that we might renew our social intimacy at the original place of meeting. But there was now a considerable difference in his way of living. Having had an illness in which he was advised to leave off wine, he had from that period continued to abstain from it, and drank only water or lemonade. I told him that a foreign friend of his, whom I had met with abroad, was so wretchedly perverted to infidelity that he treated the hopes of immortality with brutal levity, and said, As man dies like a dog, let him lie like a dog. Johnson, If he dies like a dog, let him lie like a dog. I added that this man said to me, I hate mankind, for I think myself one of the best of them, and I know how bad I am. Johnson, Sir, he must be very singular in his opinion, if he thinks himself one of the best of men, for none of his friends think him so. He said, No honest man could be a deist, for no man could be so after a fair examination of the proofs of Christianity. I named Hume. Johnson. No, sir, Hume owned to a clergyman in the bishopric of Durham that he had never read the New Testament with attention. I mentioned Hume's notion that all who are happy are equally happy. A little miss with a new gown at a dancing-school ball, a general at the head of a victorious army, and an orator after having made an eloquent speech in a great assembly. Johnson. Sir, that all who are happy are equally happy is not true. 
a peasant and a philosopher may be equally satisfied, but not equally happy. Happiness consists in the multiplicity of agreeable consciousness. A peasant has not capacity for having equal happiness with a philosopher. I remember this very question, very happily illustrated in opposition to Hume, by the Reverend Mr. Robert Brown at Utrecht. A small drinking-glass and a large one, said he, may be equally full, but the large one holds more than the small. Dr. Johnson was very kind this evening, and said to me, You have now lived five-and-twenty years, and you have employed them well. Alas, sir, said I, I fear not. Do I know history? Do I know mathematics? Do I know law? Johnson. Why, sir? though you may know no science so well as to be able to teach it, and no profession so well as to be able to follow it, your general mass of knowledge of books and men renders you very capable to make yourself master of any science, or fit yourself for any profession. I mentioned that a gay friend had advised me against being a lawyer, because I should be excelled by plodding blockheads. Johnson. Why, sir, in the formulary and statutory part of law, a plodding blockhead may excel, but in the ingenious and rational part of it a plodding blockhead can never excel. I talked of the mode adopted by some to rise in the world by courting great men, and asked him whether he had ever submitted to it. Johnson. Why, sir, I never was near enough to great men to court them. You may be prudently attached to great men, and yet independent. You are not to do what you think wrong, and, sir, you are to calculate, and not pay too dear for what you get. You must not give a shilling's worth of court for sixpence worth of good. But if you can get a shilling's worth of good for sixpence worth of court, you are a fool if you don't pay court. He said, If convents should be allowed at all, they should only be retreats for persons unable to serve the public or who have served it. It is our first duty to serve society, and, after we have done that, we may attend wholly to the salvation of our own souls. A useful passion for abstracted devotion should not be encouraged. I introduced the subject of second sight, and other mysterious manifestations, the fulfilment of which I suggested might happen by chance. Johnson. Yes, sir, but they have happened so often that mankind have agreed to think them not fortuitous. I talked to him a great deal of what I had seen in Corsica, and of my intention to publish an account of it. He encouraged me by saying, You cannot go to the bottom of the subject, but all that you tell us will be new to us. Give us as many anecdotes as you can. Our next meeting at the Mitre was on Saturday the 15th of February, when I presented to him my old and most intimate friend, the Reverend Mr. Temple, then of Cambridge. I having mentioned that I had passed some time with Rousseau in his wild retreat, and having quoted some remark made by Mr. Wilkes, with whom I had spent many pleasant hours in Italy, Johnson said, sarcastically, "'It seems, sir, you have kept very good company abroad, Rousseau and Wilkes.' Thinking it enough to defend one at a time, I said nothing as to my gay friend, but answered with a smile, My dear sir, you can't call Rousseau bad company. Do you really think him a bad man? Johnson. Sir, if you are talking jestingly of this, I don't talk with you. 
If you mean to be serious, I think him one of the worst of men. A rascal who ought to be hunted out of society, as he has been. Three or four nations have expelled him, and it is a shame that he is protected in this country. Boswell. I don't deny, sir, but that his novel may perhaps do harm, but I cannot think his intention was bad. Johnson. Sir, that will not do. We cannot prove any man's intention to be bad. You may shoot a man through the head and say you intended to miss him, but the judge will order you to be hanged. An alleged want of intention, when evil is committed, will not be allowed in a court of justice. Rousseau, sir, is a very bad man. I would sooner sign a sentence for his transportation than that of any felon who has gone from the old Bailey these many years. Yes, I should like to have him work in the plantations. Boswell. Sir, do you think him as bad a man as Voltaire? Johnson. Why, sir, it is difficult to settle the proportion of iniquity between them. This violence seemed very strange to me, who had read many of Rousseau's animated writings with great pleasure, and even edification, had been much pleased with his society, and was just come from the continent, where he was very generally admired. Nor can I yet allow that he deserves the very severe censure which Johnson pronounced upon him. His absurd preference of savage to civilised life, and other singularities, are proofs rather of a defect in his understanding than of any depravity in his heart. And, notwithstanding the unfavourable opinion which many worthy men have expressed of his profession de foi de vicar savoyard, I cannot help admiring it as the performance of a man full of sincere reverential submission to divine mystery, though beset with perplexing doubts a state of mind to be viewed with pity, rather than with anger. On his favourite subject of subordination, Johnson said, So far is it from being true that men are naturally equal, that no two people can be half an hour together, but one shall acquire an evident superiority over the other. I mentioned the advice given us by philosophers to console ourselves when distressed or embarrassed by thinking of those who are in a worse situation than ourselves. This, I observed, could not apply to all, for there must be some who have nobody worse than they are. Johnson. Why, to be sure, sir, there are, but they don't know it. There is no being so poor and so contemptible who does not think there is somebody still poorer and still more contemptible. As my stay in London at this time was very short, I had not many opportunities of being with Dr. Johnson, but I felt my veneration for him in no degree lessened by my having seen multorem hominum mores et orbes. On the contrary, by having it in my power to compare him with many of the most celebrated persons of other countries, my admiration of his extraordinary mind was increased and confirmed. The roughness, indeed, which sometimes appeared in his manners, was more striking to me now from my having been accustomed to the studied, smooth, complying habits of the continent, and I clearly recognised in him, not without respect for his honest, conscientious zeal, the same indignant and sarcastical mode of treating every attempt to unhinge or weaken good principles. One evening, when a young gentleman teased him with an account of the infidelity of his servant, who, he said, would not believe the scriptures because he could not read them in the original tongues, and be sure that they were not invented. "'Why, foolish fellow,' said Johnson, 
Has he any better authority for almost everything that he believes?' Boswell. "'Then the vulgar, sir, can never know that they are right, but must submit themselves to the learned.' Johnson. "'To be sure, sir, the vulgar are the children of the State, and must be taught like children.' Boswell. "'Then, sir, a poor Turk must be a Mahometan, just as a poor Englishman must be a Christian.' Johnson. "'Why, yes, sir, and what then?' This now is such stuff as I used to talk to my mother, when I first began to think myself a clever fellow, and she ought to have whipped me for it. Another evening Dr. Goldsmith and I called on him with the hope of prevailing upon him to sup with us at the Mitre. We found him indisposed, and resolved not to go abroad. "'Come, then,' said Goldsmith, "'we will not go to the Mitre to-night, since we cannot have the big man with us.' Johnson then called for a bottle of port, of which Goldsmith and I partook, while our friend, now a water-drinker, sat by us. Goldsmith. I think, Mr. Johnson, you don't go near the theatres now. You give yourself no more concern about a new play than if you had never had anything to do with the stage. Johnson. Why, sir, our tastes greatly alter. The lad does not care for the child's rattle and the old man does not care for the young man's whore. Goldsmith. Nay, sir, but your muse was not a whore. Johnson. Sir, I do not think she was, but as we advance in the journey of life we drop some of the things which have pleased us, whether it be that we are fatigued and don't choose to carry so many things any farther, or that we find other things which we like better. Boswell. But, sir, why don't you give us something in some other way? Goldsmith. Aye, sir, we have a claim upon you. Johnson. No, sir, I am not obliged to do any more. No man is obliged to do as much as he can do. A man is to have part of his life to himself. If a soldier has fought a good many campaigns, he is not to be blamed if he retires to ease and tranquillity. A physician, who has practised long in a great city, may be excused if he retires to a small town and takes less practice. Now, sir, the good I can do by my conversation bears the same proportion to the good I can do by my writings, that the practice of a physician retired to a small town does to his practice in a great city. Boswell. But I wonder, sir, you have not more pleasure in writing than in not writing. Johnson. Sir, you may wonder. He talked of making verses, and observed, The great difficulty is to know when you have made good ones. When composing I have generally had them in my mind, perhaps fifty at a time, walking up and down in my room, and then I have written them down, and often from laziness have written only half lines. I have written a hundred lines in a day. I remember I wrote a hundred lines of the vanity of human wishes in a day. Doctor, turning to Goldsmith, I am not quite idle. I have one line the other day, but I made no more. Goldsmith, let us hear it. We'll put a bad one to it. Johnson. No, sir, I have forgot it. Such specimens of the easy and playful conversation of the great Dr. Samuel Johnson are, I think, to be prized, as exhibiting the little varieties of a mind so enlarged and so powerful when objects of consequence required its exertions, and as giving us a minute knowledge of his character and modes of thinking. 
To Bennet Langton, Esquire, at Langton, near Spilsbury, Lincolnshire. Dear Sir, What your friends have done, that from your departure till now nothing has been heard of you, none of us are able to inform the rest, but as we are all neglected alike, no one thinks himself entitled to the privilege of complaint. I should have known nothing of you, or of Langton, from the time that dear Miss Langton left us, had I not met Mr. Simpson, of Lincoln, one day in the street, by whom I was informed that Mr. Langton, your mamma, and yourself had been ill, but that you were all recovered. That sickness should suspend your correspondence I did not wonder, but hoped that it would be renewed at your recovery. Since you will not inform us where you are, or how you live, I know not whether you desire to know anything of us. However, I will tell you that the club subsists, but we have the loss of Burke's company, since he has been engaged in public business, in which he has gained more reputation than perhaps any man at his first appearance ever gained before. He made two speeches in the House for repealing the Stamp Act, which were publicly commended by Mr. Pitt, and have filled the town with wonder. Burke is a great man by nature, and is expected soon to attain civil greatness. I am grown greater, too, for I have maintained the newspapers these many weeks, and, what is greater still, I have risen every morning since New Year's Day at about eight. When I was up I have indeed done but little, yet it is in no slight advancement to obtain for so many hours more the consciousness of being. I wish you were in my new study. I am now writing the first letter in it. I think it looks very pretty about me. Dyer is constant at the club. Hawkins is remiss. I am not over-diligent. Dr. Nugent, Dr. Goldsmith, and Mr. Reynolds are very constant. Mr. Lye is printing his Saxon and Gothic dictionary. All the club subscribes. You will pay my respects to all my Lincolnshire friends. I am, dear sir, most affectionately yours, Sam Johnson. March the ninth, 1766. Johnson's Court, Fleet Street. To Bennet Langton, Esquire, at Langton, near Spilsbury, Lincolnshire. Dear Sir, in supposing that I should be more than commonly affected by the death of Peregrine Langton, you were not mistaken. He was one of those whom I loved at once by instinct and by reason. I have seldom indulged more hope of anything than of being able to improve our acquaintance to friendship. Many a time have I placed myself again at Langton, and imagined the pleasure with which I should walk to Parkney in a summer morning, but that is no longer possible. We must now endeavour to preserve what is left us, his example of piety and economy. I hope you make what inquiries you can, and write down what is told you. The little things which distinguish domestic characters are soon forgotten. If you delay to inquire, you will have no information. If you neglect to write, information will be vain. Read the note. There is a lengthy footnote at this point, number 57, which is read in full at the end of this letter. Return to text. His art of life certainly deserves to be known and studied. He lived in plenty and elegance upon an income which, to many, would appear indigent and to most scanty. How he lived, therefore, every man has an interest in knowing. His death, I hope, was peaceful. It was surely happy. 
I wish I had written sooner, lest, writing now, I should renew your grief, but I would not forbear saying what I have now said. This loss is, I hope, the only misfortune of a family to whom no misfortune at all should happen if my wishes could avert it. Let me know how you all go on. Has Mr. Langton got him the little horse that I recommended? It would do him good to ride about his estate in fine weather. Be pleased to make my compliments to Mrs. Langton, and to dear Miss Langton, and Miss Di, and Miss Juliet, and to everybody else. The wonder, with most that hear an account of his economy, will be how he was able with such an income to do so much, especially when it is considered that he paid for everything he had. He had no land, except the two or three small fields which I have said he rented, and instead of gaining anything by their produce I have reason to think he lost by them. However, they furnished him with no further assistance towards his housekeeping than grass for his horses. Not hay, for that I know he bought, and for two cows. Every Monday morning he settled his family accounts, and so kept up a constant attention to the confining his expenses within his income and, to do it more exactly, compared those expenses with a computation he had made, how much that income would afford him every week and day of the year. One of his economical practices was, as soon as any repair was wanting in or about his house, to have it immediately performed. When he had money to spare, he chose to lay in a provision of linen or clothes, or any other necessaries, as then he said he could afford it which he might not be so well able to do when the actual want came, in consequence of which method he had a considerable supply of necessary articles lying by him, beside what was in use. But the main particular that seems to have enabled him to do so much with his income was that he paid for everything as soon as he had it, except alone what were current accounts, such as rent for his house and servants' wages, and these he paid at the stated times with the utmost exactness. He gave notice to the tradesmen of the neighbouring market-towns that they should no longer have his custom if they let any of his servants have anything without their paying for it. Thus he put it out of his power to commit those imprudences to which those are liable that defer their payments by using their money some other way than where it ought to go and whatever money he had by him, he knew that it was not demanded elsewhere, but that he might safely employ it as he pleased. His example was confined, by the sequestered place of his abode, to the observation of few, though his prudence and virtue would have made it valuable to all who could have known it. These few particulars, which I knew myself, or have obtained from those who lived with him, may afford instruction, and be an incentive to that wise art of living, which he so successfully practised. The club holds very well together. Monday is my night. I continue to rise tolerably well, and read more than I did. I hope something will yet come on it. I am, sir, your most affectionate servant, Sam Johnson. May the 10th, 1766. Johnson's Court, Fleet Street. Reader's Note Footnote 57 reads as follows. Mr. Langton did not disregard this counsel, but wrote the following account, which he has been pleased to communicate to me. The circumstances of Mr. Peregrine Langton were these. He had an annuity for life of two hundred pounds per annum. He resided in a village in Lincolnshire. 
the rent of his house, with two or three fields, was twenty-eight pounds. The county he lived in was not more than moderately cheap. His family consisted of a sister, who paid him eighteen pounds annually for her board, and a niece. The servants were two maids, and two men in livery. His common way of living at his table was three or four dishes. The appurtenances to his table were neat and handsome. He frequently entertained company at dinner, and then his table was well served, with as many dishes as were usual at the tables of the other gentlemen in the neighbourhood. His own appearance, as to clothes, was genteelly neat and plain. He always had a post-chaise, and kept three horses. Such, with the resources I have mentioned, was his way of living, which he did not suffer to employ his whole income, for he had always a sum of money lying by him for any extraordinary expenses that might arise. Some money he put into the stocks. At his death the sum he had there amounted to one hundred and fifty pounds. He purchased out of his income his household furniture and linen, of which latter he had a very ample store, and, as I am assured by those that had very good means of knowing, not less than the tenth part of his income was set apart for charity. At the time of his death the sum of twenty-five pounds was found, with a direction to be employed in such uses. He had laid down a plan of living proportioned to his income, and did not practise any extraordinary degree of parsimony, but endeavoured that in his family there should be plenty without waste. As an instance that this was his endeavour, it may be worth while to mention a method he took in regulating a proper allowance of malt liquor to be drunk in his family, that there might not be a deficiency or any intemperate profusion. On a complaint made that his allowance of a hogshead in a month was not enough for his own family, he ordered the quantity of a hogshead to be put into bottles, had it locked up from the servants, and distributed out every day eight quarts, which is the quantity each day at one hogshead in a month, and told his servants that if that did not suffice he would allow them more. But by this method it appeared at once that the allowance was much more than sufficient for his small family, and this proved a clear conviction that could not be answered, and saved all future dispute. He was, in general, very diligently and punctually attended and obeyed by his servants. He was very considerate as to the injunctions he gave, and explained them distinctly, and, at their first coming to his service, steadily exacted a close compliance with them, without any remission, and the servants, finding this to be the case, soon grew habitually accustomed to the practice of their business, and then very little further attention was necessary. On the extraordinary instances of good behaviour or diligent service he was not wanting, in particular encouragements and presents above their wages. It is remarkable that he would permit their relations to visit them, and stay at his house two or three days at a time. Main text resumes. After I had been some time in Scotland, I mentioned to him in a letter that, on my first return to my native country, after some years of absence, I was told of a vast number of my acquaintances who were all gone to the land of forgetfulness, and I found myself like a man stalking over a field of battle who every moment perceived some one lying dead. I complained of irresolution, and mentioned my having made a vow as a security for good conduct. I wrote to him again, without being able to move his indolence, nor did I hear from him till he had received a copy of my inaugural exercise, or thesis in civil law, which I published at my admission as an advocate, as is the custom in Scotland. He then wrote to me as follows. To James Boswell, Esquire. Dear Sir, 
The reception of your thesis put me in mind of my debt to you. Why did you— There is a footnote at this point, stating the passage omitted alluded to a private transaction. Return to text. I will punish you for it by telling you that your Latin wants correction. Footnote 61. The censure of my Latin relates to the dedication which was as follows. Vero nobilissimo, ornatissimo, Johanni, vis comiti Mount Stuart, Atavis edito regibus excelsi familiae debute spei alterae labente seculo, quum homines nullius originis genus aequare opibus agrediuntur, sanguinis antiqui et illustris semper memori, natalium splendorem virtutibus augenti. Note ends. In the beginning, spei alterae, not to urge that it should be prima, is not grammatical. Alterae should be alteri. In the next line you seem to use genus absolutely for what we call family, that is, for illustrious extraction, I doubt without authority. Homines nullius originis for nullis orti majoribus or nullo loco nati is, I am afraid, barbarous. Rudderman is dead. I have now vexed you enough, and will try to please you. Your resolution to obey your father I sincerely approve, but do not accustom yourself to enchain your volatility by vows. They will sometime leave a thorn in your mind, which you will, perhaps, never be able to extract or reject. Take this warning, it is of great importance. The study of the law is what you very justly term it, copious and generous, and in adding your name to its professors you have done exactly what I always wished when I wished you best. I hope that you will continue to pursue it vigorously and constantly. You gain, at least, what is no small advantage, security from those troublesome and wearisome discontents which are always obtruding themselves upon a mind vacant, unemployed, and undetermined. You ought to think it no small inducement to diligence and perseverance that they will please your father. We all live upon the hope of pleasing somebody, and the pleasure of pleasing ought to be greatest, and at last always will be greatest when our endeavours are exerted in consequence of our duty. Life is not long, and too much of it must not pass in idle deliberation how it shall be spent. Deliberation with those who begin it by prudence and continue it with subtlety must, after long expense of thought, conclude by chance. To prefer one future mode of life to another upon just reasons, requires faculties which it has not pleased our Creator to give us. If, therefore, the profession you have chosen has some unexpected inconveniences, console yourself by reflecting that no profession is without them, and that all the importunities and perplexities of business are softness and luxury compared with the incessant cravings of vacancy and the unsatisfactory expedients of idleness. Haec sunt quae nostra pollui te voce monere, vade age. As to your history of Corsica, you have no materials which others have not, or may not have. You have, somehow or other, warmed your imagination. I wish there were some cure, like the lover's leap, for all heads of which some single idea has obtained an unreasonable and irregular possession. Mind your own affairs and leave the Corsicans to theirs. I am, dear sir, your most humble servant, Samuel Johnson, London, 
August the 21st, 1766. To Dr. Samuel Johnson, Arkinleck, November the 6th, 1766. Much esteemed and dear sir, I plead not guilty to... Note 68. The passage omitted explained the transaction to which the preceding letter had alluded. End of footnote. Having thus, I hope, cleared myself of the charge brought against me, I presume you will not be displeased if I escape the punishment which you have decreed for me unheard. If you have discharged the arrows of criticism against an innocent man, you must rejoice to find they have missed him, or have not been pointed so as to wound him. To talk no longer in allegory, I am, with all deference, going to offer a few observations in defence of my Latin, which you found fault with. You think I should have used spei primae instead of spei alterae. Spes is, indeed, often used to express something upon which we have a future dependence, as in Virgil's Eclogue 1, line 14, Modo namque gemelos spem gregis arsilice in nuda conixa reliquit, and in Georgics, Book 3, line 473, spem que gregem que simul, for the lambs and the sheep. Yet it is also used to express anything on which we have a present dependence, and is well applied to a man of distinguished influence, our support, our refuge, our praesidium, as Horace calls Mycenas. So, Aeneid Book 12, line 57, Queen Amata addresses her son-in-law Turnus, Spes tu nunc una, and he was then no future hope, for she adds, Decus imperium que latini te penes which might have been said of my Lord Bute some years ago. Now, I consider the present Earl of Bute to be excelsi familiae de Butes spes prima, and my Lord Mount Stuart, as his eldest son, to be spes altera. So, in Aeneid, Book 12, line 168, after having mentioned Pater Aeneas, who was the present spes, the reigning spes, as my German friends would say, the spes prima, the poet adds, et juxta Ascanius magni spes altera Romae. You think alterae ungrammatical, and you tell me it should have been alteri. You must recollect that in old times alter was declined regularly. And when the ancient fragments preserved in the Juris Civilis Fontes were written, it was certainly declined in the way that I use it. This, I should think, may protect a lawyer who writes alterae in a dissertation upon part of his own science. But, as I could hardly venture to quote fragments of old law to so classical a man as Mr. Johnson, I have not made an accurate search into these remains to find examples of what I am able to produce in poetical composition. We find in Plautus, Rudens, Act 3, Scene 4, Nam huic alterae patria quae sit profecto nescio, Plautus is, to be sure, an old comic writer, but in the days of Scipio and Lelius we find Terence, Heartonim, Act Two, Scene Three, Hoc ipsa in itinere alterae dum narrat forte audivi. You doubt my having authority for using genus absolutely for what we call family, that is, for illustrious extraction. Now, I take genus in Latin 
to have much the same signification with birth in English, both in their primary meaning expressing simply descent, but both made to stand, Greek, cat exochen, noble descent. Genus is thus used in Horace, Book Two, Satire Five, Line Eight, et genus et virtus nisi cum re vilior alga est, and in Book One, Letter Six, Lines Thirty Seven, et genus et formam regina pecunia donat, and in the celebrated contest between Ajax and Ulysses, Ovid's Metamorphoses, Book Thirteen, Line One Hundred and Forty. Nam genus et proavos et quae non fecimus ipsi vix ea nostra voco. Homines nullius originis, for nullis orti maioribus, or nulla loconati, is, you are, afraid, barbarous. Origo is used to signify extraction, as in Virgil Aeneid, Book One, Line 286. Nasceto pulcra Trojanus origine Caesar, and in Aeneid Book Ten, line six hundred and eighteen, Ile tamen nostra deducit origine nomen, and as nullus is used for obscure, is it not in the genius of the Latin language to write nullius originis for obscure extraction? I have defended myself as well as I could. Might I? venture to differ from you with regard to the utility of vows. I am sensible that it would be very dangerous to make vows rashly and without a due consideration, but I cannot help thinking that they may often be of great advantage to one of a variable judgment and irregular inclinations. I always remember a passage in one of your letters to our Italian friend Baretti, where, talking of the monastic life, you say you do not wonder that serious men should put themselves under the protection of a religious order, when they have found how unable they are to take care of themselves. For my own part, without affecting to be a Socrates, I am sure I have a more than ordinary struggle to maintain with the evil principle, and all the methods I can devise are little enough to keep me tolerably steady in the paths of rectitude. I am ever, with the highest veneration, your affectionate humble servant, James Boswell. End of section 1